0: A couple of years ago, my wife and I, uh, we were rocked to hear that a family friend had uh, become very, very seriously ill. family friend, uh, we heard that she had uh, developed cancer. Now, as I look back on that event, uh, one of the, I suppose, or the most notable element of the whole thing was how the woman in question responded to this new crisis that was just hit her life. See, up to this point, up until the diagnosis, this woman was really quite a reserved character. Um, I'm sure you know the sort of person uh, that I mean. Um, she was really, you know, really quite a quiet lady. She was in the background uh, in church life. Um, she was perhaps maybe not even renowned for her love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then comes the diagnosis, and do you know, that kind of all of that changed like through her illness we were able to see her real love for Jesus you know through her illness her faith was it was increasingly evident through the the illness her passion to make the name of Jesus known her passion for the gospel it became a much much more obvious and i'm saying to you this morning isn't that very often how it is the trials for the christian they disclose the heart. Isn't that what we see in church life a lot of the time? That it's through adversity, when it hits a Christian, it's through adversity that we actually see what people are really like. Well, in Mark chapter 14, the obvious thing to say is that our Lord is going through a time of adversity. In fact, that's an understatement, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, no one has ever experienced the suffering that Jesus is experiencing in these words. Now, that is awful for our Lord, but I would like to suggest this morning, it's wonderful for you and it's wonderful for me. Do you see what happens today as we look at Mark 14? Through this adversity, we get to see more of the heart of Christ. Like through the trial, the testing, the difficulty that he's going into in Gethsemane, you and I today, just now, we get to see more of what our Savior is really like. And I'll tell you how we're going to play it this morning. And we're going to try and be systematic about this. We're going to work through the section of, of Scripture sequentially under a number of different headings. And the first is this, we see in Mark 14 here, Jesus' anguish. That's the first thing we've got to notice here. Jesus' anguish, his anguish. Okay, if you're visiting us this morning or not been here for a while, what what is this? Like, what, What are we dealing with at this precise moment in the Gospel of Mark? What's this? Do you know that we're actually in the same night that we've been in for the last number of weeks? if you can see what that means, Uh, that this is the same night Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, hasn't he? Same night he takes the disciples out into the Mount of Olives and it's the same night that here now he enters into a place that is called Gethsemane. I'm going to assume that most in this room just now have at least heard uh, of uh, Gethsemane. I'm sure most of you have at least heard of Gethsemane. But let's be a little bit more precise about things just now. Like we're told elsewhere in the Bible that Gethsemane was a, was a garden. In fact, I think you and I, for the benefit of today, maybe you and I have got to think about this as an orchard. Okay? And it's an orchard, you know, full of olive trees. That's Gethsemane, because Gethsemane literally means olive press. So if you got that, we see what this is. It's, a, it's an orchard, it's a garden, lots of olive trees. It's at night, what else do we know about Gethsemane? Well, we know that it was a favoured spot of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we know that? Well, now, how do we know that? We, we, we know that not just because we're told throughout the Gospels that Jesus would frequent Gethsemane. No, no, come on. Let's get our thinking caps on. How do we know that Jesus loved to go to Gethsemane? Come on. Think about the end of this portion of Scripture. We know that Jesus loved to go to Gethsemane because at the end here, Judas, the betrayer, he knows to go to Gethsemane to find the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? So we're, we see it, we've got it gethsemane the lord jesus christ at night in this orchard okay now i think it's actually very very important that we establish who jesus is with at this point so if you'd look at verse 33 and i'll just give you a moment even the boys and girls can have a wee look verse 33 who does he take he's with peter james and john now who who are they what have we called them thus far remember what have we called them they are the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. These are men who have previously in Mark's gospel, they've witnessed special events, haven't they? They've witnessed the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they've witnessed Jesus raising people from the dead. But I want you to see it's very different in Gethsemane. Jesus has taken these men with him, not to witness a special event. He's taken the inner circle in here to witness a special emotion. Because again, look at verse thirty three. Look at listen to what, what is said of your Lord. Look at this. In amongst the olive trees at night, what we told? Our Saviour becomes greatly distressed. I, I I I need you to appreciate here the force and intensity of the language. Do you see what's been said? All of a sudden. In that orchard at night time, Jesus becomes violently alarmed. I mean, this is a wave of anguish. This is, what is it, sorrow unto death coming upon Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that something? And isn't it something when we consider that this is not anguish in prayer? This is here, this is anguish that he is. It's an outpouring of emotion that he's having amongst his friends. And surely we are asking, what is, what's causing this? Like this is unlike anything before the Son of God and sorrow. What's causing this? How would you answer? Would you say it's because he's about to die? Is that the anguish? It's not the anguish. We think about men throughout history. They die well on occasion. They, they're, they're considered, they're composed in death. The Son of God could have been like that. It is not just that he is about to die. Why is there such anguish? Let me answer that by speaking to the boys and girls. Now, boys and girls, throughout the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, and you've got to listen, you've got to be on the ball this morning, boys and girls, okay? Throughout the first part of the Bible, God has a favored way. He's got a, he, he uses a symbol and a picture to speak about judgment or punishment. Right, a symbol to speak about judgment. Now, what might we think that is? If it's a symbol about punishment, we might think. If it's about judgment, boys and girls, we might think. If it's about judgment, is maybe something to do with a courtroom, like a judge? Maybe we might think. Yeah, symbol. What's the thing that a judge has got in his hand in a courtroom? It's a hammer. Sort of. It's called the gavel. So we might think if God's got a symbol about judgment, it might be that or it might be a sword, something like that. Can I tell you what it is? God's favorite symbol throughout the Bible for his judgment was a cup. Isn't that right, friends? That throughout the Bible that God promises that those people being judged for sin, what's going to happen to them? They are going to be forced to drink a cup and a cup of God's anger. They'll be forced to drink a cup, a vessel of God's wrath. Now you consider that image and then look to see what Jesus prays in verse 36. What does he later pray? He prays, Father, remove this. Remove This cup for me. Do you see what is causing the anguish? It's not his impending death. It is what that death is going to involve. Do you see what's happening in Gethsemane? In amongst these trees, it's almost like reality is just hitting home with Jesus. He realizes in just a few moments, he's not just going to face the attacks of men. He's going to face the awful anger of Almighty God at sin. I I wonder what you think if you're a Christian when you when you realise that's what's causing the anguish. What do you think? Maybe we think. Maybe we think. Hallelujah! I mean, we have a high priest who understands. We consider Jesus' despair, consider his sorrow unto death. You and I have a saviour who understands exactly what it's like to hit rock bottom. Look at the darkness. Maybe we think, hallelujah, yes, yes. But there is a more solemn thought here, is there not? I want to ask you, who causes the anguish? I mean, there's your saviour in the garden. He's 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 in such darkness. Who caused that pain and that sorrow? It was you, wasn't it? And it was me. It was the burden of our sin that caused the Lord of glory in Gethsemane to break and to break before his friends. It was you and it was me. So we see Jesus' anguish. The second thing that we note here, though, is Jesus' appeal. So Jesus' anguish, but Jesus' appeal. Now, in um, uh, Mark chapter 14, I'm sure you can see that there's this kind of gradual breaking away Uh, by Jesus. Do you you see what I mean by a gradual breaking away? He's with the twelve. He's with the the larger group. Then we've seen already that he breaks off and he's with the inner circle. And then if you look at verse 35, you see what he does. He breaks away fully and he goes further into Gethsemane and and he does it by himself now. We're told elsewhere in the Bible he's about a stone's throw away from the other disciples. He goes off by himself. Why? He goes off to pray. Now I just want to hear mention a few aspects of this incredible prayer. First thing, we've got to see the posture of the prayer. Again, uh, permit me just to speak to the boys and girls just for a moment. Now boys and girls, at, at home you pray, don't you? The boys and girls pray at home. Some of you will pray sitting at the table. Do you? You pray sitting at the table with mum and dad, maybe? Some of you will kneel uh, to pray. Maybe kneeling at the side of your bed or a chair. Others will be lying down to pray first thing in the morning. In bed, maybe last thing at night, praying. Now, here's my question for the boys and girls. What is Jesus? How does Jesus do it? What's his posture in prayer? Do you see it? Have a look at verse 35. What does he do? He... Look at verse 35. He falls to pray. Luke, in Luke's account, is even more graphic than that. In Luke's account, Luke says that the Son of God at this very moment, Gethsemane, he falls, and he falls with his face to the dirt. And if we need it, uh, has it not been underlined for us, the trauma Of Jesus Christ at this moment. This is the greatest crisis in his life up to now, that the Son of God would fall on his face to the earth. Do you see? We have the posture. Then notice also in the prayer the position that Jesus affords to God, because how does Jesus address God in prayer? What does he call God in prayer. Do you see in verse 36 there are two terms? You've got one in Aramaic, you've got one in Greek. He calls him Abba Father. Now, let's not be predictable about this, okay? Let's not have the argument that everyone likes to have about this. You know how, you know the argument I'm gonna mention, do you? In church, oh, is Abba Father, is that the same as us praying? Daddy! When we pray to God. Let's not be predictable. Let's not have that that argument. There is none of the childishness of daddy. Prevalent or evident in this term. It's not about childishness. It's about familiarity. It is about closeness. So do you see what you've got in front of you? Do you see what it is that God is allowing you to do? You as you read about Gethsemane. You're granted access to an Intimate moment between the persons of the Trinity. This in here just not special. Even if you cannot see it, God is showing you the Son, speaking, calling to the Father, calling in agony. Do you see this is a most personal moment? So the posture and the position. Then think about the pleading of the prayer because what do we want to know in a prayer? We want to know what Jesus asks in prayer. Don't we? Look at verse 35 because Mark sums it all up. Now, be careful with the language. We'll need it. Jesus asks that this hour, it might pass from him. Allow me just to stop. Um, for years... I was getting Gethsemane so wrong. I I used to work in a a Christian bookshop and we would talk about portions of Scripture during the day and and we would talk about Gethsemane. For years, I was getting Gethsemane wrong because I was reading it and, and I thought Jesus couldn't really mean that prayer. Like he's praying there. What was it? That the hour passed by praying to God that Calvary... Would pass him by, and I read that thought, he doesn't really mean that. He doesn't really want Calvary to pass him by. I mean, he's praying it just to fulfill scripture. Praying it just to emphasize how awful Golgotha would be. Now, I, 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 I want you to hear this. I was so wrong. Do you, you understand what's happening here? Do you understand that the son is begging his father? Like this is genuine. This is heartfelt. He is, he is pleading with God that, 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 that if possible, that Calvary pass him by. This isn't uh, verbiage, and it's not just for the sake of it. It's not just role playing. He's, he's, he's pleading. He is desperate that, if at all possible, that he would not have to walk this awful path of suffering. Now. What, does that distress you as a Christian? Does it sound like the Trinity? Is it cross-purposes in Gethsemane? Worry not. It, because more than the posture, more than the position or the pleading, it is the priority of this prayer that's important. Look how Jesus ends the prayer. It's the end of verse 36. So he's pleading. He's begging that Calvary pass him by. And then he says, yet not what I but what you will, do you see it? This isn't a demand, this is a prayer. There is this God honouring caveat. Yes, he's desperate that He not have to walk this path of suffering, but only, only if that is within the perfect purposes and will of almighty and eternal God. And I think in that, there's a lesson for you, there's a lesson for me about how we live, how we pray. Do you see it? No matter how desperate we are for something just now. No matter how desperate we are for our health or a relationship thing, a change, desperate for a predicament to be altered, desperate for spiritual priority. What do we do? We do this. We pray But we pray within the framework of the purposes of God. We, at Gethsemane, what do we see? That for us too, our number one priority is always to pray. But pray in our lives forevermore God's will be done. We see Jesus' anguish. We see Jesus' appeal. Thirdly, we see Jesus' attentiveness his attentiveness when I became a Christian uh, in my early twenties or thereabouts I think I've mentioned from the pulpit before uh, or I have mentioned from the pulpit before that at that time there was a number of other young men who, be- who were converted and became Christians, there was a big group of us and uh, in that's our first zeal of faith what the group decided to do uh, was to stage an all-night prayer vigil. All-night prayer vigil. Does that sound a bit cheesy? It wasn't uh, cheesy. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, so we got all the guys together, go around to one of the boys' houses, and we prayed. Now, we kind of, you know, we we spent the first while just talking about what we were going to pray about. We were going to pray, I remember it vividly, we were going to pray about unity of the church that we were attending. We were going to pray about people who would be converted. I really beg God that you would save people. We also prayed about the church a bit wider, you know, prayed about the persecuted church. as well. We talked about these things, then we prayed. Now the whole evening was kind of punctuated by these little short breaks that we would have. You know, maybe in case, I don't know, I don't know why we decided to do that. But we punctuated it all, where we'd stop, and we'd go away, and we'd just walk a little bit by ourselves, stretch our legs, have a glass of water. Then we'd all come back together and get on it, and we'd get praying again. Now you note, don't you, that that is what Jesus does in this garden in Mark chapter 14, do you? That it's not one long, consecutive long prayer. What does he do? Like he breaks up this prayer, this heartfelt prayer. He breaks it up three times to return to Peter, James and John. Now, first thing you've got to notice is the failure that confronts him when he comes back to the disciples. And at this point, I've got to warn you, if you're feeling a little bit dozy. I like if my eyelids are a bit heavy, if you feel a bit sleepy, you're going to have to watch because I'm going to use you as a sermon illustration because what what does Jesus find when he comes back to Peter, James and John? What, what's going on? They are, they're sleeping. They're out for the count. I, I want to know, I do, I, I, how do you feel about this? Like do you think we should be generous towards Peter, James, and John? Do you? Do you think we should cut them some slack? After all, this is the middle of the night. Maybe it's a bit warm. They've just had a massive meal. The Passover feast. Should we cut them a bit of slack about falling asleep? I don't think we should. I mean, consider the distress they've just seen from their Lord. To sleep after that. Consider that he has explicitly commanded them to stay awake, stay awake. Consider that it's repeated disobedience. No, this is sloth. And isn't this laziness? Doesn't it speak volumes to the weakness of humanity? But then more than, more than that, I want you just to focus on the compassion of Jesus Christ. Because I do have a question for you. I would ask you to consider it carefully. Why on earth does he break from prayer? When we said he he breaks three times, he comes back to the disciples three times. Now consider the gravity of the prayer. Consider what is at stake. Consider what he's asking for. Why does he break? Why does he come back to Peter, James and John? Do you see what it is? It is all out of his concern for those people. Look at verse 38. Have a look. He comes back to these men. And what does he do? He instructs them. He takes his break from prayer. He comes back and he's concerned to teach them. He's gone through this time of great testing. He's now sent them to them, watch and pray that you don't enter temptation. Do you see what this is? He's, he's concerned. He comes back three times because he's... Come on! I mean, don't you find that just breathtaking? This is the point of greatest crisis in Jesus' life. It is the point of great trauma in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about his people. He's thinking about those people that he loves, those who are his. Now let that sink into your life this morning. Do you see what it means for you? It means right now, just now, the Son of God himself, he's looking on at your predicament, your situation, and he is desperately concerned for you. Now, who do you think I am speaking to when I say that? That the Son of God is concerned for you? Do you think that it is the spiritual person in your family that I'm speaking to? Boys and girls, do you think when I say that God is concerned for you, do you think I'm speaking to your parents? Do you think it's the person sitting next to you? Do you think it's the person who is super spiritual, praying every week at the prayer meeting? Is that who I'm speaking to? Who is Jesus concerned for here? It's Peter. Remember last week? And it's James and it's John to see Jesus is you, the failing Christian, the flawed Christian, the people who will deny him and fall away from him. He's concerned for you. Isn't it, isn't it stunning? It's almost unbelievable. But it is what we see in this orchard on the Mount of Olives. There are twin concerns. Christ concerned for the purposes of his Father, but Christ concerned for you. He's concerned for those who are united to him by faith. And then we end with a fourth A. Jesus' anguish, Jesus' appeal, Jesus' attentiveness, and then Jesus' advance. Is it not true that that part of the reason for the uh, prayerlessness of the contemporary church is the fact that we have lost sight of the fact that our God hears us when we pray? (laughs) If we would only remember when we pray that we have the ear of Almighty God, surely we would be on our knees more often in prayer. I think we see in Mark 14... That God answers prayer. What was it exactly that Jesus prayed? Do you remember I said pay attention to the language? What was it? He prayed that the hour might pass. Now look what he says in verse 41. He's prayed that the hour might pass. And now we read that no. The hour has come. Do you see it? Do you get an insight into the, the the communication between the Trinity? Jesus knows he 's prayed that this might be taken, and he knows his father 's heard, he knows his father has said, no, the hour the hour in Gethsemane has now come. I started this sermon, and I, I, I started by talking about illness um, a few years ago, I had a, a health scare off my own, I, I should say right from the outset here, came to nothing, and uh, you know all, it was fine, no problems at all. But there was a moment, and there was a moment where, uh, in consultation with medical professionals, they said to me, "Well, you know, we think it, you've got to be prepared that it might be cancer." And they said, "Right, we'll, we'll get back to you in, in a few days' time, a couple of days' time." You've got me at home in Woodford, and the phone goes, and I pick up the phone, and it's the doctor. And the weirdest thing happened, like everything just stopped, because I realised, hang on, (laughs) everything comes down to the next few seconds here. You see what I mean? Like the shape of the next few weeks, next few months, next few years potentially all kind of comes down to what the doctor is going to say. Like there was this just incredible suspense, incredible tension. and I'm thinking it all comes down to these few seconds here. And I, I need you to understand that, that it's that sort of tension, but a million times more that occurs in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you feel the tension In amongst the trees at night, do you you sense the suspense? Because think about it, Jesus right now has a choice to make. You see, the hour has come. He can see that the betrayer is coming. Do you see the choice? He can run. Like he can leave, he can get out of there, he can shrink back from this path of suffering. He can choose that, or he can choose to stay and endure the cup of God's wrath. Do you sense the tension? Do you see that everything hinges on those few seconds? Like Your future hinges on what Jesus will do. Your eternal destiny, your salvation, a path of forgiveness for humanity. It all hinges on those seconds in the garden. What is Jesus going to do? And then, look at the very first word of verse 42. What does he say? He says, rise, Rise! Now do you, do you understand what that is? That is not Jesus throwing away a throwaway comment. That there is a battle cry rise, the knowing full well what it will mean to stay, knowing full well the pain that is coming his way, this mighty warrior king, he says, advance, he says, charge, he enters the battle with sin and death, that you and I know that he is going to win, he says, rise. And surely, when we look at Gethsemane, our hearts too, They rise with gratitude. Because as you read these verses this morning, what do you see in Gethsemane? You see the Son of God stay. You see Him fight. You see Him overcome, friends. You see for you that He would go on to drink even the dregs of that cup of fearful wrath and anger he would do it all for you and your salvation so I end with this question have you fallen with your face to the dirt before the Lord God most high have you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ if you have not done that that I want you to understand that this morning, right now, at London City Presbyterian Church, there is another moment of suspense and tension. I tell you, even the angels and the heavenly beings, they look on at you just now. (laughs) And they're wondering something. They're asking, what are you going to do? Will you continue to refuse Jesus Will you continue to reject this sovereign Lord? Or this morning, will you look into the orchard? Will you see through his affliction who Jesus is and what he has done to set his people free? I'm asking you, what are you going to do? Friends, if you have not before this very morning, look in to the garden. See a willing Savior from sin. And you today repent and believe in the Son of Almighty God. His us pray.